Today, we continue our study of the letter to the Hebrews. We've been making our way this summer through this letter, part by part. This comes as part five in our series called Pay Attention, a study focused on the letter to the Hebrews and how we're called to look closer, to pay better attention to who Jesus is through this letter. I'd encourage you, as always, to go back to our podcast or our website where you can find lessons one through four and catch up to this part five of this sermon series, or perhaps do that after you've listened to this message. But today we'll be covering chapters eight and nine of the letter to the Hebrews. So if you have a Bible in front of you, turn to Hebrews chapter eight. Just a few years back, my father marked his 60th birthday. My brother and I were convinced that we ought to do something fun or exciting or adventurous to mark this occasion, and so we came up with an event for the three of us, my brother, my dad, and I, called 60 for 60. The idea was that for my dad's 60th birthday, one spring break, we would take a couple days and paddle 60 miles to mark his 60 years. That's right, I said paddle in our kayaks along the San Marcos River here in Texas, 60 miles of water. Now, some might say that's some kind of cruel punishment for the old man, make him row himself 60 miles down the river, but he was up for the task and excited about the chore. And so together, each of us had canoed or paddled different stretches of the San Marcos and Guadalupe rivers throughout our lives, but never in this large of a chunk. So we mapped out our 60 miles of the San Marcos River beginning there in San Marcos and making our way down to Palmetto State Park. A portion of the river slightly before it joins the Guadalupe and slows down some. Like a lot of Texas's spring-fed rivers, there's that area it bubbles up from and, and is much more narrow. And as you make your way down the San Marcos River by kayak, you, you get to see the twists and the turns of each section. They're all marked with unique features. In some places, Of course, the pace is slow and and the paddling is heavier. At other places, the river picks up, the rapids come in, the the pace of flow goes much faster. You can almost just ride the current. Sometimes the twists and turns of the river make it very narrow and deep with steep banks and overarching trees. At other places, the landscape flattens out. The river becomes a little bit more shallow and, and you can see further off in each direction. At some points in the river, it's, it's blocked, sometimes in this case by debris that had floated down the river from a recent storm would cause us to have to scoot around the edge or, or make it through a fallen tree. Several portions of that section of the river require portage to get out your kayak and drag it around a dam or an obstruction that's man-made in the way. Some parts are excellent for fishing, other parts are excellent for paddling, there's different Uh, landscapes, different kinds of trees along the way, different animals as you go, but it remains a single river moving purposefully to its goal. You have no choice but to go in the direction that it's going, even though you could hardly guess from the small stream it begins as that it would at some point join other rivers and become this huge, wide, slow stretch of powerful, powerful river making its way into the Gulf of Mexico. We're nearly halfway through the letter to the Hebrews now, and as the thought of the letters is 
coming together. We're seeing places where it cuts deep into some, some rich theology. And this is a good, a good chance to look back over the whole route that we've taken to get here, the twists and turns that the writer of the letter to Hebrews has taken to explain to us who Jesus is. Think back even to where we started, that, that, that bubbling up excitement from the first chapter of Hebrews when the greatness of the Messiah over and against the angels was pointed out. And throughout the many twists and turns of these passages and, and the different places we've been called on to, to look deeper, the different points we've pulled out, the conclusions we've made, that powerful river has continued to move in one direction before joining this larger, vast ocean of Christian wisdom we have in the Scriptures. Now it's obvious from a glance at today's passage that we're now faced with the longest single biblical quotation we've had so far here in chapter 8. It's a quotation from Jeremiah that we'll get to later, and it's an important clue to the rest of the river. So this becomes a good point for us to look back and to see the journey that we've come to this point in Hebrews, but also to look forward and to see where this river, this argument that the letter is making, this sermon that the preacher is preaching, where it's taking us. You'll remember how we noticed not that long ago that the word better occurs in Hebrews more than in the rest of the New Testament put together. Which is kind of a clue really for where this river is going. That the, What the writer is doing is choosing passages from the Old Testament which remind us in summary that what we have is good but God is doing something better. What we have is, is true but it isn't the whole truth. What we know at the moment is important, but the most important thing we know is that God is planning to do something even greater. So this whole letter has been written in order to say that the something more, the, the whole truth, the better thing, has now arrived in Jesus. So as N.T. Wright says, whatever you do, don't go back to the old things. However good and true they were, they are now taken up in the new and better. Otherwise, you'll look like somebody trying to pump water from a river back upstream or, or paddle against the flow for a long time. It just can't be done. You have to go where this river is taking you if you want to finish the journey, even though it's traveling into countryside you hadn't expected. So as we look back over the different streams that have made this river what it is and the different tributaries and, and water that's moving in this one direction, we look back and think to where this study of the Hebrews began. That in the first two chapters with a bunch of different biblical passages, uh, we learn that Jesus the Messiah was God's one and only Son and, and superior to the angels who gave the law. That was blended together with, with passages from Psalm 8 back in chapter 2 where it became clear that Jesus is the truly human being and that he's a true human being. And then in chapters 3 and 4, the writer took us into a whole different world with Psalm 95 and insisted that according to the psalm itself, there is still a, a Sabbath rest waiting for God's people. And God invites us into that rest. You'll remember that there's, there's something for which uh, the promised land was not capable to accomplish a, a greater promised land. That land is God's eternal rest. And we strive for it. And then in chapter 4, the mood shifted again as Hebrews focused on Jesus 
as the true high priest. And so we looked at Psalm 110 and how the writer to the Hebrews mentions that Jesus as a priest is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's been the fullest example so far of the way the, the writers use the Bible, finding a passage that points beyond itself to something else, to a reality yet to come, to who Jesus is. And then we looked uh, at what that priesthood was described as in chapters 5 through 7 in our last message in this series. That the central theme of Jesus being our priest applies not just to our past or our future, but even to our present as he is the one who intercedes on our behalf. And in this discussion of Jesus' priesthood, we've come all the way to chapter 8 where we are now, seeing the longest quotation of the whole letter here in chapter 8 of Hebrews where Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, are directly quoted in the middle of chapter 8. All aimed at understanding that God will make a new covenant to replace the one he made with Moses. So as we trace this theme of Jesus being better, we remember first as he's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the priests, better than the temple and Melchizedek. And he is presenting us even now with a better covenant. So today we ask ourselves, what does it mean that Jesus offers us a new and better covenant? Hebrews 8 verse 1 says this, Now the main point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, hence it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a great he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second one. And so it becomes this need for a new covenant, a second one that the author is arguing. Just like the preacher pointed out early on how the imperfections of the old priestly order required this new way of being a priest, that Jesus lives before us. He now matches that claim with a, with a similar suggestion about how the problems with the old covenant made a new covenant necessary. I don't know if that idea of covenant is one that resonates in your mind or if the first covenant draws certain images of what that was. But when, when the writer of Hebrews talks about the first covenant, he means the covenant that God made between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. That after God gave the law through Moses, the people made a solemn vow back in Exodus 24. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And as a sign of that covenant, Moses even dashed the blood of sacrificed oxen on the people and declared 
in Exodus 24, verses 7 through 8, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And the bad news about the old covenant is that the people were not loyal to that. We talked about the word fidelity as, as faithfulness to, to God as being a central element in Hebrews. Well, the people were not faithful to that first covenant. It wasn't an equal relationship. God was God and the people were the people, but it was supposed to be this two-way arrangement where the people would hold firmly on their side of the rope and God would hold firmly on his side of the rope to pull them to the place of safety and rest like Hebrews spoke of before. But what the people promised to do, they failed to do. They were unable to do. They grew weary time and time again. And the whole tradition of them wandering in the wilderness is about a, a grumbling people with wavering faith. Unfortunately, we can't relate to that, can we? we? We don't have wavering faith. We don't grumble when things don't seem explainable on our terms or God doesn't deliver in our timing, do we? Well, if only. And of course, part of what we're learning in Hebrews is that Jesus is who he is because we cannot save ourselves. Because we're just like those people who grow weary and who let go, who swear in obedience on one hand and, and, and buckle at the knees at the first chance we get to break that covenant. And it turns out that no law could make them obey and no amount of ox blood could, could make them strong enough or strengthen their resolve enough. But the good news, the good news that we're learning again and again is that God never lets go of his side of the rope. The people might lose their faith, but God doesn't. The people could not keep their faith, but God could. But since the first covenant wasn't effective, God is merciful enough to make a new covenant. You know, when I was a kid, we had one of those basketball goals that hangs on the back of your bedroom door. Anybody else remember those? You ever had one of those? Uh, they were great. As a kid, it was like uh, an amazing toy, this awesome idea that you could play sports right in your bedroom. Uh, we'd play two-on-two, three-on-three, have friends over. My, my mother would think the, the house was falling down because our upstairs bedroom would rattle the joists in the home. We'd pretend we were our favorite stars. We'd pretend we were dribbling on the carpet, shooting shots from across the room, making up shots off the wall, dunking a basketball by jumping off a chair. You know, can you imagine, though, giving one of those hang-on-the-back-of-the-door little basketball goals that were made for a kid's bedroom to someone who'd never even seen basketball before or never even understood the game or knew what the, the real thing looked like? And that person might imagine that that hang-on-the-door basketball goal was the real thing. I mean, that was, that's all there was. They might think that the, the pinnacle of the game of basketball is, is attaching a one-foot-by-one-foot one backboard and a six-inch little rim with a little fake net on it that broke the first time you played with it on the back of your bedroom door. But for us as kids, the, the thing gained its meaning. It had purpose to us and, and an imagination beyond itself because we knew what real professional basketball looked like, what the stars did when they had a real basketball, not this tiny rubber thing in their hands. And we could pretend to be that, the, the true grown-up version of this game. You know, something like this, only more so, lies 
at the heart of Hebrews. N.T. Wright says that the people are, are drawing between uh, the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle that the Israelites had in the wilderness and the real thing, the true shrine, which is heaven. So when the Hebrews talks about the temple or the wilderness tabernacle as a, a copy or shadow of the heavenly realities or a, a sketch, a shadow of the heavenly one. The writer's careful to explain what he means, that, that the original tabernacle, which accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness and continued as the center of Israelite worship until the temple was built by Solomon, all of those things pointed forward. We're supposed to, to be pictures in today's world of a future to come, the, the actual heavenly sanctuary. So this passage really is drawing together for the last time the contrast between Jesus as the true high priest and all the priests that went before. And then putting right in front of us the contrast between the old covenant, that bond established between God and Israel at Mount Sinai and the new covenant promised long ago and now brought into being by Jesus. Verse 6 mentions that and introduces this new section that starts in verse 7 where that covenant will be explained. But the, the point is, the thrust behind this is that like small children discovering that there is there's such a real thing as, as actual professional basketball and that their hang on the back of the door little mini goal was just a small substitute. These people are going to have to learn to celebrate and enjoy the real thing. They shouldn't play around in their bedrooms with a tiny little ball and, and cling to some fake imitation as if it was the real thing. No, don't cling on to the copy. Take hold of the real thing. This new and beautiful covenant offered by God through Jesus. All of these other things were just imitations, preparation for this plan that has now been revealed. But you can imagine how that change would unravel, would shake the foundations of these early Jewish people. I mean, think of their temple, the center of all of their cultural and religious life, the center of their family, for the most devout Jews, the center of all of their devotion. And then someone shows up and says, essentially, that that as great as that temple was, the very house of God and, and the place where the priests served were just representatives of a new temple that's shown up. And that they should, should basically throw out this old one and take on this new one. And that would be a threat that would just seem overwhelming politically and socially and religiously to all that they knew. You can, you can imagine that anyone suggesting that their, their temple was only a copy of the reality and anyone who came to God through Jesus was entering through the true temple, which had all along existed in heaven and would only one day be revealed as the reality. Anybody embracing that would be seen as so horribly disloyal to the way things were. And you know as well as I do that when countries or cultures come under threat, violence can happen. Disloyalty is punished. People get uneasy. Unrest begins to spread. We'll see in chapter 10 that that's literally what was happening among these Jews. 
But part of the reason for writing this letter is that the Jewish Christians who received it were under pressure and under threat and needed to know and to know clearly that Jesus was in fact the true high priest, did in fact enter the true temple on their behalf, that the old temple was good, but the the new real one was better, that the old priests were good, but the new priest was better, the old covenant was good, but the new one was better. And it was built on better promises. So what were those promises? What are the promises of this new covenant that truly is better in Hebrews chapter 8? Quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 8 says, God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach one another to say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. In her book called The Preaching Life, Barbara Brown Taylor tells the story of when she was in charge of the Christian education for her local church. She was serving as a minister there. And when she was seeking to to meet the people's needs, she'd often ask congregants what they were hungry for. And, And the answer came back again and again, Bible study. Bible study. And so, in response to their expression of their need, she started to to hire professors from a nearby seminary to teach courses on the Old Testament and the the New Testament. And they kept offering these in-depth Bible studies. And when people saw the course announcements, they said they looked good, but strangely, attendance was always terrible. Nobody showed up. Even though these people didn't come to the classes, they just kept asking for more Bible And then they'd offer more Bible classes and and hardly anybody would show up. So she provided more Bible studies and people kept staying away. Finally, she writes in her book, I got the message. Bible was a code word for God. People were not as hungry for information about the Bible as they were hungry for an experience of God, which the Bible seemed to offer them. So from then on, she began to offer a different kind of Bible encounter with a God through the text. Attendance, she said, began to soar. In some ways, that's exactly what the preacher in Hebrews is talking about. People want God. You can tell them about God, you can give them information, but at our core, at your core, at my core, what we want is not just to know about God, but to know him personally, to have an experience with him. We long for the divine to break into our mundane life experience and, and to redeem us and to restore us and to call us into a life of purpose and meaning, to tell us who we are and what we're created to be. 
And this becomes the, the plight, the problem that the preacher in Hebrews sees represented in the old tabernacle, in the old priesthood, in the old covenant. Everybody hungers for access to God, but under that old system, only the high priest could go in. Everybody needs God's mercy and help every day, but the high priest could approach only the holy once a year. Humanity thirsts for freedom from guilt and a fresh start and a healed spirit, but, but the blood sacrifices of the old high priest couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And so chapter 9 continues this argument about why this new covenant is better by showing us that there's true atonement, not offered by a priest, but by giving the people access to God himself. That Jesus has not just told us something informational, some new knowledge about God, but has made God available to us. And so if we skip to chapter 9, verse 11, we'll see that the good news of the gospel that the preacher is proclaiming is that this is exactly the kind of high priest we have. That when Christ came in chapter 9, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. And so this comparison continues. If the old system, of course, it refers back to those systems of sacrifice that would um, sanctify what had been defiled, the sprinkling of blood and ashes of heifer. If that was effective for something so great, how much greater then? Is the God who gives his own blood in Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish and can purify our conscience. And so we begin to see how this new priest and this new covenant is greater and more perfect. The comparison has continued. And as verse 15 says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the, the promised eternal inheritance. So the argument of Hebrews is in a sense coming to a pinnacle, coming to, to a point of culmination to make sure we know that Jesus is in fact greater than all of these things. That an, an atonement has been made that does not simply give a priest access to God or a sacrifice the power to at one time make clean what was defiled, but that once and for all, all humankind, to those who place their faith in him, he has given a relationship, access to God himself. And this argument continues to be made, going all the way down to verse 23 of chapter 9, that it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so the writer of Hebrews 
reminds us that somehow in some glorious and magnificent way that we could have never imagined and nobody in the whole world could have ever come to this conclusion on themselves, but these old signs and symbols of salvation have become a reality in Jesus himself. And this is such a huge idea. It has such a powerful impact that the many Christians, even today, shrink away from this. This passage is often seen in horror or disgust, and it is a challenging one to understand why why blood and sacrifice are involved in atonement. But the idea of God shedding His blood, as as powerfully paradoxical as it is, is central to our New Testament, and especially to the letter of Hebrews. And so even the first couple sections of chapter 10 are aimed at wrapping up this same argument. And we're going to circle back all the way to where we begin in chapter 10, verse 11. That every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, There is no longer any offering for sin. And so the promises of a new covenant made back in Jeremiah chapter 31, quoted in uh, in chapter 8 and again here in chapter 10, have come true. That a new covenant has been born through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that our sins would be remembered no more. Friend, let it be true of you that where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is made so abundantly clear by this new covenant that it is only by God's grace that we receive salvation, that we receive forgiveness even today. Our whole life is placed before him and he takes and absorbs onto himself the consequences of our sins and gives us in return the life he now lives, life in relationship with the Father, so that His law would be in our hearts, that He would write them on our minds. And so we make it our prayer and our purpose that after following this twisting and turning river and the arguments made at each section slowing up, slowing down and speeding back up, we would come now to this moment in Hebrews to see that our sins can be remembered No more. If by the blood of Jesus we are sanctified, we are made holy, we are redeemed. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer a need for an offering for sin. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, for all people, for all time. And he does this so that we would enter this new covenant, this new relationship where God reaches out to us in the promise of his unending faithfulness and says, you also be faithful to me. For I have made this new covenant possible that you might know 
my life, the life I have for you. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer need for offering for sin. Join me as we pray. God, may this new covenant, this new relationship be embraced by us, that it would define who we are and lead us by your spirit into the new future you promise for us, your life now and forever in eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.